Welcome down to this week's episode of Paddy Talks Golf. Thanks for pressing play, first of all. Great to see you here this week. And Dustin Johnson has got himself a green jacket. And you should get yourself some premium golf balls for half the price. So head over to seedgolf.com and try them today. The SD2, or the Seed2, is what I use. Fantastic for links golf. Just soft enough and plenty long enough for what I need to do. The podcast is also brought to you by Drew's Golf, who are the future of golf, 100% born in Ireland, supplying the world with high-quality apparel and golfing accessories. So whether it's Christmas goodies for a loved one, or more importantly, an ambassador pack for yourself, stick Paddy in at the checkout, and they'll know you listen to the podcast. Discount code incoming. So let's letter their inbox with Paddy's, and then we'll all get a lovely code for future discounts. On this week's episode is an Irish professional golfer. Jesus, I love interviewing these guys. They're really insightful into what the world of professional golf is like. It's not all private jets and green jackets and millions of pounds. They work flopping hard. And this week, it's a young Irish golfer professional from Port Marnock Way. It's Conor Purcell. But first, roll it there, Colette. We talking about practice. Joe Brawley told us the production line was finished in Kerry. Well, Joe Brawley, what did he get at? Donald Donovan is the last quarterback. He hits it. He hits it. It's over the bar. Oh, holy Moses. It's all on this. Welcome to this week's episode. I'm speaking with an Irish professional golfer, Connor Purcell. How's it going? Good, good. It's um, it's good to finally catch up and have a sit down. Um, Irish professional golfer. How many times have you been introduced like that, and what does it feel like? Yeah, not too many. It's been a, a short-lived pro life so far. Probably had about six months of it. Um, but uh, yeah, I'm probably coming up on. A year after turning pro now it was sometime last november when i started down in australia so um geez it's been a quick year it has been a quick year like i'm working from home since march and, I, and someone said it's been almost a year and i was like no it's, happened. it's only been a couple of months but like the whole year has passed us and for making a decision from going from the amateur game to professional some people make life and some people don't and some people say it's all about timing and if you were to say it's all about timing you'd say you know, hindsight's twenty twenty. in terms of it mightn't have been the best time to turn pro, but how have you felt your timing in that decision has been? Yeah, it's, it's very funny because I've had so many people come up to me this year. Oh, I'm terribly sorry you turned pro. This time must be so hard. And I'm like, geez, you really need to just think that through. Like there's a lot worse that could be going on. Um, but uh, yeah, my decision was kind of, it happened quick in the end last November. I had a few starts in Australia and um, yeah, everything seemed to be kind of smooth sailing, I would say. Um, I had a good uh, good first few months lined up after the amateur uh, circuit, you could say. And then, yeah, at the, at the start of March when everything kind of shut down, that was when you just kind of sat back and go, geez, things do happen quite quick. And um yeah, it's just been it's a, been a crazy summer. Like I've never had this long at home. Uh, and a few weeks ago, I went over 
the Euro Pro and I was like, it's the first time I was leaving the country in however many months. I'd say I haven't done that since I've been about 13. So um, it's it's been nice. It's actually been a really good year as well. I know people have a lot of negative connotations with the year, but um, I've had quite a good year and kind of looked after myself. No, it's great. I mean, it's great from um, from a times perspective. Who would have thought you'd have turned pro and had so much time at home to spend with family, you know? Um, I know. And if anything, there's less pressure on you, maybe, because you're just not able to play. But, like, that's what you want to be doing. In terms of, I suppose, getting into the game, Connor, what's your earliest memory of golf? I'd say my first memory is um, when Irish Opens were kind of in Port Marnock at the time. And my dad was the pro, and all the tented villages were set up. And I remember, like, playing all those little games with the plastic clubs and winning little prizes and stuff. That's the very very first memory I can um, think of and then that kind of fed into like golf and holidays up in Rossapena where we'd go every year and uh, I was never a member of a golf club until probably 12 or 13 so up until that age it was kind of like just more of a hobby that I took on on holidays and um, yeah it kind of once I got the, the itch for it at 12 or 13 I kind of I just kept going and haven't really stopped since. So it's actually been a nice time to just sit back and reflect on everything. And it's even funny when you sit down and do a podcast, like it's kind of like self-reflection and you're like, geez, a lot has gone on. There's no point being too down yourself or if you've had a bad tournament, like it's, it's not the end of the world. No, it's the same. Like I, I equate um, like golf or sport a lot to business so it's like you know, my team is Man United so they don't really care about how they perform at the moment you know they're, they're all talking about the next game and, and when they do win it's a turning point you know so um, <laughs> so yeah it, it's definitely in business or, or in sales where I am it's like you take this month and you have a path to success you know and if it works out then great and if it doesn't you, you kind of look back and say oh what could I have changed so for you uh, I didn't know your dad was the pro so is it kind of like a Justin and Mike Thomas relationship going on like once you picked up a golf club kind of half serious did he step in or what was that relationship like growing up yeah he's always been a, a huge part of my my golfing career like he's the one I would have learned from and I do a lot of my learning just from actually seeing him play and all credit to him he's quite good at demonstrating a lot of shots I know you can get a lot of coaches who actually can't even hit the shot themselves and I find it very difficult to just listen to words rather than seeing them do it so um, a lot of our growing up um, would have just been on the golf course and in Port Marnock we do a lot of messing with hitting massive shapes whether it's a big slice or a big draw and learning how the club works that way rather than P1 to P10 and whatever. Um, that was yeah, that kind of way of vibe as well. We always said, what I always said, there was nothing but a bunch of shapers coming down from Port Marnock to the Hinchoggy summer. But I meant <laughs> it in that, in that sense, of course, you know, high fades and overdrawing the ball and that type of stuff. <laughs> but uh, did you do much of that growing up? Like you mentioned Holidays to Rossapena. How pure is Rossapena? Because it's on my radar, like big time. Yeah, it's my favourite place, um, without a doubt, in Ireland. Um, I think the fact it's so far out of everyone's way, and when you go up there, like we'd have a great relationship with the Casey family who run it, and um, we've always just stayed in the hotel, and you have so much land up there that 
it's just like it's a golfer's heaven um and like you kind of once you're not going up expecting to play like the world's most pristine golf course it's very natural land and it's very mossy and that's just a lie of the land but you've some of the best views and some of the coolest holes you'll ever play and every time I go up I, I'm even still in awe of it and I look forward to certain shots like people who know it up in Sandy Hills the the second shot into the sixth hole is probably one of the most picturesque second shots you'll ever hit um, and we've just had a great time up there and I guess when that's where I started playing golf, it's probably why I have such fond memories of it as well. So moving through the ranks then of of being an elite golfer, because like that that's a term that I aspire to as being an elite golfer. So thanks to the WHS system, I'm almost there. You know, so if you hadn't turned pro last November, I'd say your your WHS handicap would have gone to like plus eight, would it? What, is, what <laughs> handicap are you when you turn pro? Is it like plus what? I'd say plus four, plus five. I can't remember. Um, yeah, should it be like a plus 12 if WHS has something to do <laughs> <laughs> apparently few uh, <laughs> question marks I've seen already <laughs> but like what's that like or what's I suppose how do you plan out your year when you get to that level of in, in Irish golf anyway so like to put it into a question you came on my radar as one of the top players I suppose the early early 2019 and then boom like six eight months later you returned pro but it wasn't that quick was it so when did you see yourself reach that? Would you call yourself an elite amateur, I suppose, is the question? I think for me, when I made my first appearance for Ireland, no matter how small it was, it was under 16 quadrangular in Wales. And I remember going over to Southern Down and it was absolutely Baltic. And we were like, ice or frost delays every morning and like just brutal weather. But I think that's when I kind of realized that you're in quite a small group. There might be 10 to 15 of you on a panel who are selected for the year. And um, like as bad as it might sound, all the people who aren't on that team do like kind of aspire to be those people on the teams. And um, it's quite a, a privilege to be on them teams and you get treated quite well and you get a lot of opportunities going through the years. and. Um, yeah so going back to your question I'd imagine that I'd consider myself elite when I made that team There was a stint in America as well how long was that for and what was it like? Well I, I went over for two years so I I went to Charlotte and North Carolina um, after leaving sir I'd been recruited there and I actually travelled over with an Irish friend Mark Boucher and two English guys at the time and um yeah, I kind of, I went over there expecting to finish four years. I'd, I'd nothing stopped me from doing it, but um, I cut it short after two years and uh, kind of took a step into full-time golf to see if it would, if it would be my cup of tea. Cause it, like if you don't enjoy full-time golf as an amateur, you'll struggle to enjoy it as a pro. So that was my thinking behind it. And I had a great year and um, fed me into all. Cup and then turn pro after that. So that's deadly, and I suppose that goes. That's a testament down to I suppose the amount of people that go stateside. And I don't think we have a, a like a patch on the on the qual on the quantity that go over. Was there um, 
A culture shift for North Carolina for North Carolina for you compared to here, the heat being one. Yeah, there was a there was a lot of things uh really different, but I think that's the beauty about playing amateur golf as you're growing up. You've traveled so much around the world that you become so cultured and it's not like your first time hopping on a plane going over to college. Um like you go over to college in America and some of the American lads have barely left their state, never mind the country. And they're just like, they haven't a clue what's going on. And then I went over and um, I think it helped having a few international, you know, I say internationals, but it was an Irish and two English guys on a, on an eight man team. Um, that kind of gave us a bit of sense of home when we were away and the assistant coach was English. So I kind of didn't feel like I was thrown in at the deep end in that um, sense, but uh, there was definitely little things like you can tell that all the American players can kind of put their coach up on a pedestal. And it's like, if they say something wrong to them, they're afraid that they might get a whip or something like not as serious as that, but I mean, like they're afraid they'll get punished if they say something out of turn. And um, I think the guys who were on my team were kind of the first few to kind of question coaches over there, especially our coach and just ask them why we're doing this or why we're doing that. And I think it kind of, it just grows you as a person being away for, from home, having to live by yourself and do, do some of the things that you don't like doing, like um, doing your own washing and bed sheets and all the likes. Um, I still have shock to the system. Don't worry. I'm 33, 34. And like, that's still, that's still a culture shock every month. I like to turn around and go, what do you myself? Yeah. Um, <laughs> there's a reason I go home so often, you know, <laughs> the, big, the, the, the big bag of washing still comes with me. Just on that, in terms of, you, you might say question the coach, I would say challenging and I suppose and that's another parallel to like this, the business world is is to be high performing you need you need to be challenging opinion do you know what I mean in terms of if we always do it the same like are we getting better so is that was that more the, where the question was stateside and maybe what you've learned to do maybe through lockdown is like we need to keep I need to keep challenging myself here for, for growth and, and to maintain the high standards was, was it from that perspective yeah, to to an extent, but I think from my point of view, when I went over, let's just say a lot of college coaches over there would have their own method like any coach would. And they could say that, right, we're going to go as a group and we're going to hit balls for an hour. We're going to chip for an hour. We're going to go out and play holes and that's how practice is scheduled. But I'd be... I'd be very stubborn to stick to my own ways and ways that I've developed myself. Like I had the opinion going over that, well, the way I've trained over the past, let's say six or eight years has got me to this point. I'm going to keep doing it until it becomes stagnant. And I hadn't become stagnant at that time. And I never felt the need to change it, to adapt to a team mentality. Like golf is an individual sport. Um, and you can get great things out of training in groups, but at the end of the day, you have to look after yourself and be accountable for what you do and not expect the coach to lay out your training day for you. So that was kind of just me. Um, some people enjoy it and some people don't. And I was just one of them who liked to 
doing my own thing and not really follow what everyone else was doing. No, it's great. It's great to have that self-belief because I suppose the the individual kind of lifestyle, you know, you're it's a it's a results it's a results focused industry you're in now. Um so to have that self-belief is definitely, you know, it's 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 some foundation for you to build on. The decision to go full-time amateur, was that down to your again, your self-belief, or was it with the goal of making walking cup? Was that up there at that time? Yeah, there was two two sides to it. So I had as bad as again, it's terrible, but I had the idea to transfer college to South Carolina in that summer of my second year. Um, and there was just a lot going through my head at the time. And I decided like, what is the long-term plan here? I want, want to be a pro. What do I feel is the best way I can get there? So basically I'm very fortunate. I knew people all around the world. My brother lives down in Australia. We had contacts down there. I had the option if I wanted to go down to Australia and practice for it was six weeks, play a couple of events, and then hopefully the, the following January and February be part of the Irish squad that goes to South Africa. So I was like, I've never really experienced that side of the world. I've never experienced South Africa trips, and I've heard great things about them. Um, so I laid out like it was about a 12 or 13 month plan and I remember doing it with my brother I had a calendar what events I was going to play what I was going to do on my time off and at the big at the end was Walker Cup and that was just if things go well I'd see myself making this team based on how I feel so things just started really well I went down to Australia won the Aussie Am at the start of 2019 and that just fed me to have I I actually didn't have an amazing year but there were some weeks I did well but my name was just kind of in the pot at the time and um, I'd consider myself lucky at the time to make Walker Cup but I did it and I was happy enough you got it and like there's some there's some serious names on that Walker Cup team you know, um, a certain Fitzpatrick, whose who's brother's on tour, um, Harry Hobbs, a serious baller, yourself, Mr. Bucket Hat, Rafferty, Suggsy, who's in Augusta, uh, whether this goes out like next week, and you and Walker, it's like your cream of the crop that went out there. Um, describe what that meant to you. Do you. Like, how do you find out you make the team? Does, do you get a phone call? Do you, do you get a letter in the post? Like, how, how, how do you find out? Yeah, I remember there was like, we found out quite late. It could have even been two and a half or three weeks before the event. And like at that stage, you're like, do I start asking people have they gotten anything or what's the procedure here? And I remember just standing in my kitchen and I looked at my phone and it was ringing and it was a, a UK number. And I nearly just started laughing out loud, ran into the sitting room, answered the phone and it was Craig, the captain and he was like, look, just ringing you to say you made the team if you don't mind keeping it quiet or whatever until a press release. And I just walked back into the kitchen and I was like, yeah, it was like a celebration. Like It was like um, like the feeling of making a tournament yourself or winning a tournament. Um, so, yeah, that's how I found out. And 
that month itself, the few weeks before, it went very quick. The week itself went quick, and then it was just over in a flash. And it seems like now you it'd be easy to forget about it. But when you sit down and think about it, it was um, a really good time. Well, straight away, I'm like, does it help you validate that the decisions you've made for for what you want to do have been the right ones? Like that decision from like not to defer, like not to go to the south side, even though you know south side is often looked as being the, the better side. But like you didn't go south side in, in Carolina, um, and like you mapped out your plan and like you achieved the goal. Like, did you ever sit down and go, like, fuck it, that was the right, that was the right move? Yeah, at the time, I I was quite, um, I was happy with myself. I knew that just with the position that you're in, if you're on a, an Irish team and you're kind of in the amateur scene, you can be scrutinized, whether it's the media or just members of any golf club or people, you know, they could be like, you really think that's a good idea leaving college. But the fact that a few months later I win an event really helped my mind in the sense that I was like, look, it's a good idea when I put my mind to it, I can achieve good things. And um, kind of if, if you were to ask me right now, I wouldn't, um, I wouldn't worry too much about what other people are saying. Uh, I've become very self-sufficient and like, I'm very happy with every decision that I make. So I'm not worried about what people would think now, but at the time I'd say having that win in Australia definitely did help. So after Walker Cup, what did you map out another plan for yourself? In in a way. So before I turned pro, the plan was I was going to wait until May until Challenge Tour kicked off. And my idea was having played Walker Cup, I might get a couple of invites on the Challenge Tour and that might feed me into Q School this year, which is whatever, um, September, October time. That kind of changed when I had the invites into Australia I started speaking with management and they were saying that I could get some starts at the start of 2020. So then I was like, I sat down with Neil Manship and I was like, like, what are the reasons? Why would I be hanging on until May? And I I thought about that trip to South Africa and playing elite amateur stuff for a few months. Um, and I just decided against it and I went pro and... Yeah, I didn't plan out as much as I did that year before Walker Cup just because when you go pro, you don't have the schedule choice like you did as an amateur. You're kind of, you take what you're given. And if you get an invite on a Tuesday to play that Thursday, you have to be ready to jump on a plane and go play that tournament. So I had it mapped out to an extent to start Q school again this year, but Obviously, as we all know now, things went a bit differently than um, we had planned. Than everybody planned. Um, you aren't like me and had one in the oven, so you'll always be in lockdown anyway. Um, <laughs> so and you can wait for the kids, maybe. But like, just when you said there, like you have to be ready to get an email or a notification to say, right, you need to jump on a plane on a Tuesday, to play an on a Thursday. And we did a little chat before I pressed record around, you know, the importance of support and that being financial for, for, for professionals, you know? So like, I don't know where that flight is, but if you're getting a flight 
this evening you're only booking it now and if it's the Portugal it's going to be like well now it's probably 20 quid with COVID but like in general it's you know it's going to be two or three hundred quid I saw on Twitter like early last week um uh, the Monday qualifier profile he put up like a Corn Ferry Tour player mapped out his budget for the year and it was something obscene and like it included like X amount for travel X amount for tournament entry fees so like I don't know a lot of people don't know that like, you have to pay it to enter and it's not like a tenner you know it's a few hundred bucks not going to put a word in my mouth or in your mouth but I'm going to guess that a year on tour and we'll say like challenge tour-ish I would say it costs about with a hundred grand, would if I had a hundred grand, could I say I'll turn pro and I can survive for a year? Or would I be struggling? Yeah, you definitely survive your year with a hundred grand. But that being said, there's always there's different routes that people like to take. Some people will be very, very much they travel as minimalistic as they can. They'd they'd stay in a worse off hotel to save fifty quid a night. And there's definitely different ways of doing it. And I think just having that money kind of gives you that that comfort knowing that, look, you don't have to sacrifice the bed you're sleeping in um, to play this event. And I think for your first year out, you just need to, to basically have as much to travel where you want and play what you want and not really have a restriction on that. I think being able to travel all around the world is very important you could stick to Great Britain and Ireland and not spend near as much as a hundred grand for the year. But um, I, like I started off the year, for example, down in South Africa and then went up to the Middle East and played some MENA tour. So like the air miles you're clocking up there are just, are through the roof. And like in a week you could be hopping on six or seven flights just with connections to these crazy countries and we were going to Jordan and it's not an easy place to get to. And like these countries aren't cheap when you're there. So you definitely can do it on a budget, but I don't think I'd be as comfortable as playing with just some money, knowing that you can, you can play and worst case scenario, if things don't go your way, you can, um, you can buy yourself a meal after that tournament. I suppose from, from my perspective, it's you were running your own business, right? And and you're the, the sole provider for it. Um, so you should be able to just focus on what you need to do, which is play golf. So if you're worrying about paying for flights or paying for dinner or paying for the way book a you know, a hostel or 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 whatever, or do I share with some of the lads, which I know a lot are doing, um, which is fine. It's more about enabling yourself. And I think that's where sponsorship and partnerships are key and today like you've you've gotten good sponsorship from from what i believe in terms of in the media like Caragol for good backers which and they're a fantastic company and strict on europe from from the equipment perspective but for i suppose irish lads and ladies turning pro is there a gap there for like uh, and it's not like i'm looking for a job for myself for someone to be there to help new irish pros get the sponsorship deals they need to support their year instead of long-term just hoping for that Sport Ireland grant, you know, which might pay for a couple of months. Yeah, I know what you're saying. Um, I think from my my point of view, when I was always going up, if you're, if you're one to like 
say, want a sponsorship, let's just say you're an amateur starting out and you want to try to get a full set of Titleist clubs and you know that Titleists are supporting amateurs and certain players get um, clubs free of charge. There's like a fine line between like pushing and asking for that and like not sure if you're good enough to get that. I always say like your golf should speak for all these things that you get. So if you're ranked highly, if you're performing well in tournaments, you're going to get what you want in terms of these closed deals and club deals. So I think turning pro, I personally, if I was turning pro and had to go searching for club companies or loads of different companies to try support me, some people can can feel okay doing that, but I just wouldn't feel setting myself. I'd rather people approach me. Um, but like I said, there's just so many different ways. I remember when I was playing my first pro event in Australia, actually, I played with an Aussie guy who played a bit of PGA Tour and he was down on Corn Ferry Tour for a few years. I can't remember his name, but like he was telling me stories of him sleeping in a car in America. And like, I then looked up online and he had made millions in his career. And he was talking about stories where he had slept in a car. And I was like, some people are just made out for that kind of grit and determination. Like there's people who can sleep in a car and get up and shoot 65 the next morning. Like I can't sleep in a bed and get up straight, so I, I don't know how I'd do it sleeping in a car. <laughs> I know. So there's just there's so many different walks of life, and there's so many different routes to tour that I'd hate to give out like advice to someone and say, look, if you don't have the sponsorship, don't give it a run. At the end of the day, if you shoot the scores, you'll get there, and it's a results business, as we always say. Absolutely. So what would your, we'll put COVID aside, right, if we can. So let's just say Santa's going to bring um, that vial for everyone we can all inject ourselves with the antibodies on Stephen's day. Might be whiskey yeah. or it might be, might, be, um, might be some medicine, but let's hope we'll have a clear 2021. What, what would that look like for you in terms of, like what, what are the, what's the plan for the year all going well? It's a hard one to say because I feel like I'm kind of back where I was when I first started and turned pro because I think you just have to take it for what it is. It's going to be an uncertain, it could be 18 months. No one really knows what's going to happen at the start of next year and you just need to be willing to roll with the punches. Um, we could find a vaccine at the end of this year and things start going normally in 2021, but it's just about having the playing opportunities and some tours might kick off like we see the European tour kicking off as normal but at the end of the day that's not what mini tour golf is like in Europe right now it's uh, it's definitely not as glamorous as the lads playing for a couple hundred grand first prize so the, the guys at the top are going to be able to keep doing what they're doing but I think it's just going to be a difficult 12 months for us and we just need to be uh, to willing to fight for it it's like a traffic jam, if I could put it that way. There's tons of people who are ready to go to Q school and make the next step at the end of every year. And this year, the traffic light is red, and it's going to be um, it's going to be a long time before you get the green light. Well, I suppose that then it's about 
you know, like you said, they're shooting the scores to to pay your way almost, you know. And um, you sound like you have your your SH your shit together, you know, and you're kind of primed and ready to do that. Fair play to you. Maybe looking back to amateur days, or maybe to North Carolina or that week in High Lake. Have you any particular like memorable story, or maybe a lesson your dad gave us that changed everything for you? I don't know. I think just from my own kind of story, the week where I won the South was quite a big week. There was a lot going on. Um, you could say I wasn't really on any particular radar at the time. Uh, Holmes wasn't going to be selected for a few weeks. And like I went into the week and got a neck injury, like slept funny. And like basically. Hinter do that to you. They hinter do that to you. Sleeping funny, you know? Yeah. <laughs> so she falls asleep in that beach. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but. Um, yeah, like I play, played that week half crippled and end up winning it and that kind of catapults me into men's golf. And like, I always look back and think if that didn't happen, what route would it have gone? And things could have been completely different. I wouldn't have played homes. I wouldn't have got on the men's team for the following year. And there's just um, just weeks like that that will happen. But um, you kind of need to look at it from a long-term project and down the road, you have to just believe that you're going to be able to do it. And, um, you know, we just need to sit tight. It's not the end of the world that we can't play at the moment. But uh, when we do get back, I'll be itching to go. Absolutely. I feel for you in that sense. And, like, you're definitely a man who doesn't need to read a self-help book, I don't think. I think you've got to, you've got to build in. <laughs> I've read a lot of them, I'd say that's why. <laughs> <laughs> maybe, maybe I'm just playing catch-up. Come here to me, Connor. What would your walk-on song be? Walk-on song. You know the theme song from The, the Departed? Yes, I do. Yeah. I'd say that'll that do it. A, that'll yeah. do it. That, that'll be, that'll be some tune when you're playing golf sixes in Denmark, walking through the bar. Wouldn't it? <laughs> <laughs> Is it gym? Is it gym or pizza for you? Jeez, depends what day you get me on. I do gym and then pizza straight after. <laughs> Dead right. Hat visor or a Keenan Rafferty bucket hat? On me, I'd have to go with a hat. <laughs> Happy Gilmore or Tin Cup? Happy Gilmore. Walk or cart? Walk. Win the Masters or win the Open? Win the Open. Instagram or Twitter? Instagram. Play or practice? Play. Right, you're just after getting back from um, either like a half day with your dad and a coaching session or maybe after shooting 64 on the Challenge Tour, maybe European Tour, and you're going to dinner and you can bring six people, anyone you want. Who are the six people? Six people. These are all going to come from people I've looked at a lot over the last few months. I'd say Joe Rogan's going to be one. Tiger Woods is going to be another. David Goggins is going to be another. This woman, Courtney Doewater, who's an ultra marathoner. What am I on now? I'm on You've four. two to go. This YouTuber I watch, Nick Bear. Oh, he's serious, yeah. <laughs> Ridiculous. And then last one, Ryan Holiday. Well, I can understand Ryan Holiday. Tell us why Courtney. Tell us about the ultra runner. Why is she there? There's been a lot of stuff over the last few months. I've, I've really gotten into, like, I've had so much time to be able to train as much as I want because tournaments haven't been as um as much as uh previous years so i've actually i ran a marathon a few weeks ago i ran the virtual marathon the double marathon with uh, a friend Jesus, of mine. fair play 
and I'd just gotten into running kind of when lockdown first started and ever since I've just been really hooked on it and I came across this woman Courtney on the Joe Rogan podcast actually and her story was she became an ultra marathoner and started dominating the sport and she won this race called the Moab 240 so she ran or Moab Moab 238 maybe she ran basically 280 miles or something as quick as possible and it took her 58 hours and she slept for 21 minutes and Joe Rogan was trying to ask her like what's her diet does she do anything crazy training wise and she's like I just drink beer and eat some cheese quesadillas and um it was just mind-blowing. She was very much into the whole mental side of things and how much your your mind can overtake your body when you feel like you've given everything. You can actually give a lot more. And then that kind of fed into getting into a bit of David Goggins. And I've just found it amazing, like a lot of uncomfortable situations that you might feel like, look, it's time to pack it in. But when you just like when you break that barrier there's just some mad stuff that goes on and uh, like that marathon was kind of my first challenge I was doing it and I went into it knowing look I'm going to experience a lot of pain I'd imagine and like I finished it and I was like I just watched your one Courtney like the day before and I was like she's like look I, I wonder what it's like to run 100 miles or something like that and like mad stuff just gets in my head so I, like I've always been really fascinated by fitness and stuff like that and um, there's some crazy people out there I definitely recommend watching that podcast if you can oh I'm well able and will do it's a great recommendation <laughs> great story um, 238 240 either it's still a long fucking way if you ask me yeah <laughs> so. I, I want to say I think 240 is the number um, but yeah she was saying how she fell asleep for 20 minutes at one stage for a nap and she was fine. And then at one stage, she had a one-minute nap. And she reckoned she had, like, REM sleep and everything in that one-minute nap. She said it was unbelievable. And woke up feeling like she slept for an hour. That'd be, that'd be handy now on, on a quick flight to Portugal when you need it and you need to shoot a good score. Those one minute of deep REM sleeps. I, I tell you, if, if you had a long wait in the tea box, you could do it. <laughs> Yeah, that'll be that. Yeah, yeah. Rounds ain't that short on tour, I hear. Yeah, so yeah it might come in useful. Connor Parcel, thank you very much for your time. It's been Thanks a pleasure. We'll talk to you soon, hopefully on the course. Cheers. Thanks. Good to hear from you. That was Connor Purcell, and what an absolute gent he was. I think you'll find that's the common denominator across all the Irish pros, both female and male. They're all absolutely brilliant people. Really insightful chat there with Connor really think he's going to be um, quite successful at whatever he does I mean who runs a marathon during lockdown with nobody else around um, just more power to the man in the belief he has in himself and I belief I think we can tell from that chat that he's always had in himself and he's backed himself and I think that's something we can all take from that chat I know I will that once I can map out the plan to bloody back myself and execute on it and uh, succeed so if you have liked this episode back yourself and leave another review there on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening to this and can leave a review please do please share it 
with a friend, with your family, with your WhatsApp groups. And let one more person a week find this show and maybe have a laugh or maybe learn something or maybe laugh at how West of Ireland my accent really is. But yeah, if you've liked the show, share it around, uh, leave a review, get on to paddygoff.com, join the timesheet. And there's some interesting news, partnership discounts, all that stuff uh, will be shared there too along with some back episodes of my favourites. So yeah, I'll leave it to it. Fair play to Justin Johnson and that new jacket of his. Um, yeah, if you want a good story about Dustin Johnson, go back and listen to the Keel McDonough episode. Yeah, there's a good one in there, all about Dustin. I hope you enjoyed that one too. Um, I'll talk to you next week uh, when we have a really good chat with someone I really look up to. So I hope you will enjoy that one also. So until we tear up again soon, I'm Paddy.